Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcasts or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground, Radio Havana Cuba, NHK Japan, and France 24. We will begin with Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground. Afshin spoke with John Perkins, author of an updated version of his book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. John describes the work of the World Bank and IMF as the death economy, using debt to control countries in Latin America and Africa. The military-industrial complex bloomed after 9-11 and again now with the war in Ukraine. U.S. corporations make much larger profits developing infrastructure in indebted or war-torn countries than at home. And banks can commit economic crimes and are let off with small fines. Going underground. We've been charting the end of the good cop, bad cop, World Bank, IMF consensus that Washington has leveraged around the world. Arguably, conflicts over Ukraine and Taiwan are now slamming the doors shut on the post-1945 era of economic hitmen that comprised NATO nation lenders, corporations, the CIA, and those who fostered global war, debt, and famine. One of the hitmen and someone who blew the whistle on them is John Perkins. He allegedly advised the World Bank, the IMF, the U.S. Treasury Department, Fortune 500 uh, corporations, government all around the world. His best-selling Confessions of an Economic Hitman is now in a 2023 updated third edition. He's on Bainbridge Island over the water from Seattle in Washington State. People in the global south, like, I get so many messages from them and when I go and, and visit and speak in places uh, in South America and, and, and elsewhere, I hear that they knew this sort of thing was going on, but to actually have it be exposed and in writing by someone who was there on the ground doing these nefarious things, which which I did, uh, and and to have someone admit to doing them and 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 now spend the rest of his life trying to turn that around, is very gratifying to them. So uh, the book is very very popular. It's been I think thirty eight languages now, sold over two million copies. You know we can talk about climate change and income inequality and species extinction. Those are problems, but they're not the problem. They are symptoms of this death economy that's based on short-term maximization of profits. Period, and it's not working. A trickle-down economics does not work, and so, you know, the book is about how do we create a life economy that pays people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to develop technologies like, you know, wind and solar. So there are times when Washington will use debt as an instrument of war uh, with interest payments, impoverishing the developing world countries. And then there are kinetic times like Vietnam or Iraq. Uh, just tell us a bit about these cycles and whether the Ukraine situation is a is a kinetic one or is a uh, is something uh, 
that will also be technocratic and to do with debt, some people say, of the whole of Western Europe to U.S. gas, liquid natural, natural gas. So after the failure of the war in Vietnam, failure from the United States standpoint, at least strategically speaking, it wasn't a failure if you happen to have to be a major investor in military industrial industries. They saw the war as quite a success, actually. They made a lot of money, in other words, but it was a failure strategically. After that, it was decided that military might wasn't the way to go. Uh, that we needed to go with economic hitmen. We needed to essentially control countries through debt rather than the military. <clears throat> and this was this went on for many years. And it particularly revved up after 1991 when the Soviet Union dissolved, when the United States was the only world superpower. But during this period of time, those involved in the, what we call the military-industrial complex, the ones who make the weapons, the big companies that, that make, make, make the airplanes, the Lockheed Martins and Boeings and so on and so forth, they were not happy with that situation. And they put a lot of pressure on, on the Carter administration. And so when 9-11 happened, we went back into that cycle. This was a tremendously great excuse to rev up the military side of our, of our economy. And that's what happened after 9-11. And in some respects, uh, you, the Ukra Ukraine war is giving us the opportunity to rev that up even even more. It, it seems to be impossible to find out how much of this aid that we're giving to Ukraine is actually in the form of debt. There can't be any doubt that some of it, at least, probably a lot of it is in the form of debt. But it's hard to tell because what the American people, what the world is told is that we're giving all this aid to Ukraine. The one thing we do know is that that is, is providing a lot of profits to the military industries in, in the United States. Uh, there's, there's no question that, that, that they're making a lot of money off this. Who owes that money <laughs> remains to be seen. Why is infrastructure in the state that it is in, in the United States? Is, and how is it related to this uh, economic, global economic hitman jackal strategy from Washington? <laughs> Well, because the United States, uh, uh, corporations can't make nearly as much money off doing infrastructure projects in the United States as they can make off doing infrastructure projects in other countries. So when an economic hitman goes in and convinces the president of, of a Latin American or an African country to take a huge loan from the World Bank that they have to use to hire U.S. corporations to build infrastructure projects in their country, the, 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 the company that builds the infrastructure projects, the U.S. corporation, makes huge profits. And, of course, the military-industrial complex does not benefit uh, from uh, infrastructure projects in the United States the way that they benefit from what goes on in other countries. So there's a lot of pressure at the various highest levels of our government through lobbyists and consultants and advisors uh, to expand all, all of our overseas efforts. And the other side of that is that as we expand these overseas efforts, we are also aligning ourselves with countries that have resources that our corporations want, oil, copper, cobalt. Today, we're looking to, to, to you know, to take better control of the lithium, which is, you know, so important to the, to, to the green economy. And China has essentially, I think they control just about 90% of the lithium in the world. You say in this book, that uh, since the first edition, you become shocked by how blatant, defiant, and merciless the NATO nation, the banks, these big banks of the NATO nations are. Uh, you talk about the corrupt uh, LIBOR interest rate setting. 
And um, you don't think much of the 10 billion fine on JP Morgan, Chase, Barclays, Bank of Scotland, UBS, pleaded guilty, Deutsche Bank, two and a half billion dollars. You weren't satisfied the fact that all these banks were uh, uh, corrupt? <laughs> Admittedly <laughs> corrupt. They, they can't sue me on that one. What do you mean I wasn't satisfied? With the fine, the levels of fine. They paid their dues. Oh, well, They're clean no, now. It, 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 well, isn't it funny that banks get fined, but banks don't commit don't commit uh, crimes. Banks don't get put in prison. Uh, banks don't, uh, you know, they get fined. But the people that actually committed the crimes, the ones who made the decisions, they go scot-free. Uh, those are the CEOs, they, they, you know, people in high positions in these banks. I, yeah, I think that's horrific that corporations in the United States have the rights of individuals, but they don't have the responsibilities and they don't have to answer to the same laws. It's not the way a democracy should operate. John Perkins, thank you. And the third and latest edition of Confessions of an Economic Hitman is out now if you're thinking of taking out an IMF loan. That excerpted interview with John Perkins was by Afshin Ratansi from his weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with John Pilger, Julian Assange, Vandana Shiva, and many others. Search for Going Underground TV on Rumble.com. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Australian lawmakers are urging the U.S. Ambassador Carolyn Kennedy to drop charges against Julian Assange and send him home. Days before the coronation, indigenous leaders from former British colonies called on the now King Charles to apologize, pay reparations, and acknowledge genocide. The Committee to Protect Journalists reported that the Israeli military takes no accountability for killing at least 20 journalists over the past 20 years, including 18 Palestinians. Radio Havana, Cuba. Australian lawmakers have met with U.S. Ambassador Carolyn Kennedy, urging her to help drop the pending extradition case against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and allow him to return to Australia. The, quote, Bring Julian Assange Home Parliamentary Group said on Tuesday it informed Kennedy of, quote, the widespread concern in Australia about the continued detention of Assange, an Australian citizen. The meeting comes before U.S. President Joe Biden's scheduled visit to Australia this month for the Quad Leaders Summit. Quote, there are a range of views about Assange in the Australian community, and the members of the parliamentary group reflect that diversity of views. But what is not in dispute in the group is that Mr. Assange is being treated unjustly, the legislators said in a statement after meeting Kennedy in the capital, Canberra. Assange is battling extradition from the United Kingdom to the U.S., where he is wanted on criminal charges over the release of confidential military records and diplomatic cables in 2010. Washington says the release of the documents had put lives in danger. Assange's supporters say he is an anti-establishment hero who has been victimized because he exposed U.S. wrongdoings, including in conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq.
The U.S. Embassy in Australia confirmed the meeting in a tweet, but did not share further details. Assange's brother, Gabriel Shipton, said he felt the meeting was, quote, an important acknowledgement by the U.S. government that, quote, Julian's freedom is important to millions of Australians. After Prime Minister Anthony Albanese expressed frustration with the Biden administration, this is now a test for Ambassador Kennedy to see if she can move forward and with Washington on this issue. Albanese, who has been advocating for the release of Assange, aired his frustration last week for not yet finding a diplomatic fix over the issue. Support for Assange amongst U.S. policymakers remains low. Only a few members of Congress have come forward in support of the demand to drop charges against him. If extradited, Assange faces a sentence of up to 175 years in a maximum security prison. As King Charles prepared for his coronation on Saturday, indigenous leaders in former British colonies called on the monarch to apologize, pay reparations, and, quote, acknowledge the horrific impacts on and legacy of genocide and colonization of the indigenous and enslaved peoples. They are also demanding the repatriation of the remains and cultural artifacts of indigenous peoples. The letter to King Charles was signed by groups in Antigua and Barbuda, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia and St. Vincent and the Grenadine. Britain was one of the largest slave traders in the Atlantic in the 18th century. Senior Jamaican government official Marlene Malahu Forte spoke with Sky News Thursday, quote, Why not a full apology? Is it because you may have to give back the wealth of the monarchy taken from the people, taken from the places that were colonized, taken from the places where the people were enslaved? It's personal for our people. The policies that are racist and unjust by virtue of nationality and ethnic background and the colour of your skin. It's just not right. Minister Malahu Forte said the coronation has accelerated plans for Jamaica to become a republic, with the referendum taking place as early as next year. The coronation ceremony will cost British taxpayers up to $125 million at a time when many are struggling to pay for basic living expenses. Last week, the Home Office Police Powers Unit wrote to anti-monarchy groups planning peaceful protests, warning them about new criminal penalties and expanded police powers that were rushed into law ahead of the coronation. The Committee to Protect Journalists, the CPJ, confirms in a new report that the Israeli military has taken no accountability for its killings of at least 20 journalists over the past 20 years, 18 of whom were Palestinian. In its report, Deadly Pattern, published on Tuesday, the Press Freedom Watchdog said it had found, quote, a pattern of the killings of journalists by, by Israeli military. No one has ever been charged or held accountable for these deaths, severely undermining the freedom of the press. 
The CPJ said Palestinians make up 80% of journalists and media workers killed by the Israeli military. Quote, those figures are partly a reflection of broader trends in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. According to the United Nations figures, over the last 15 years, 21 times more Palestinians than Israelis have been killed. The report confirmed that, quote, Israeli officials discount evidence and witnesses, often appearing to clear soldiers for the killings while inquiries are still in progress, saying that the Israeli military's inquiries of the killings are a black box with results kept secret. The CPJ said, quote, when probes do take place, the Israeli military often takes months or years to investigate killings, and families of the mostly Palestinian journalists have little recourse inside Israel to pursue justice. Hagai El Ad, executive director of Israeli human rights group Beit Selim, said in the report that Israel's examination of its soldiers' actions was a less serious inquiry than, quote, a theatre of investigation. They want to make it look credible. They go through the motions, but the bottom line is almost blanket impunity for security forces. The report comes two days before the first anniversary of the killing of veteran Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh while she was reporting on an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin on May the 11th, 2022. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6,000, 60, or 61.65. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. Next, NHK Japan. In Russia, at the annual Victory Day Parade, Putin said civilization was at a crucial turning point. The foreign ministers of China and Germany disagree about the invasion of Ukraine, but agreed to work together on climate change. Japan is trying to quell South Korean objections to the upcoming release of radioactive wastewater from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. In Pakistan, a court directed the release of recently imprisoned former Prime Minister Khan, NHK Japan. Russians and Ukrainians used to celebrate their triumph over Nazi Germany together on what's known as Victory Day. But now they found their own ways to reflect on the past. Russians look upon Victory Day as their most important secular holiday. Many turn out for a parade that serves as a showcase of military might. President Vladimir Putin repeated some grievances against Ukraine and the West casting the invasion as a struggle for survival. Today, civilization is once again at a crucial turning point. A real war is once again being waged against our homeland. Organizers were concerned about security. Those in Moscow went ahead, but without the usual military flyover. Those in other cities canceled or scaled back their celebrations. The foreign ministers for China and Germany have agreed to disagree when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. China, as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, 
could play a significant role in ending the war if it decided to do so. The minister spoke after a Tuesday meeting in Berlin. European nations have repeatedly called on Beijing to encourage Moscow to withdraw. Instead, China has said it will continue to talk to all parties to try to arrange a ceasefire. As a permanent member of the UN Security Council and as a responsible country, we will continue to work for peaceful negotiations. We will not add fuel to the fire or use the crisis for our own benefit. The two ministers also discussed the recent EU proposal to blacklist some Chinese companies over concerns they're selling equipment that could be used by Russia's military. Baerbach said she hopes Beijing will use its influence on Chinese businesses. But Qin Gang warned that Beijing will protect the rights and legal interests of companies. Qin and Baerbach did agree to cooperate on climate change and said they will prepare for meetings between their leaders and ministers set to be held in June. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol have wrapped up their summit in Seoul. The two leaders reconfirmed their plans to maintain close communication to boost security cooperation and further improve relations. Another item on the agenda during the summit was the planned release of treated and diluted water from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The two leaders agreed that Seoul will send experts to the plant this month. The Japanese government and the plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, plan to start releasing treated water into the ocean this summer. Most of the radioactive materials are removed from the cooling water before it is stored, but it still contains tritium. The treated water will be diluted to reduce the tritium levels before it is released. Its tritium concentration will be lowered to one-seventh of the World Health Organization's standards for drinking water. Kishida said Japan intends to explain the plan with a high degree of transparency and using scientific evidence. I am well aware that some people in South Korea are expressing concerns about the plan. To gain people's understanding, I have agreed to allow experts from Seoul to visit the Fukushima plant this month. Kishida added the process will not affect people's health or the marine environment. We begin from Pakistan, where multiple local media outlets are reporting that the country's top court has ordered the anti-graft agency to release former Prime Minister Imran Khan. His recent arrest triggered outbreaks of violence across the country. Khan was arrested in a land fraud case on Tuesday and was reportedly charged in a separate case the day after. Local media say he allegedly sold state gifts during his four years in power. Some demonstrations have escalated, with protesters destroying police vehicles and setting fire to a radio station. At least four people were killed and over 80 others wounded in the northwestern city of Peshawar on Wednesday as crowds clashed with security forces. Authorities in the capital, Islamabad, and some provinces have reportedly called in the military to restore order.
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9.865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also have podcasts up at most sites. All the times they announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet, like listeners in Ukiah and Albion, California did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with France 24. Press reviews on a new ban on far-right demonstrations in France and college paper ghostwriters in Kenya and the advent of AI writing programs. In Alberta, Canada, nearly a million acres of forest have burned, causing large evacuations. France 24. Here in France, Libération is focusing on the government's decision uh, to ban far-right demonstrations uh, after criticisms over the weekend rally of some 600 neo-Nazis in central Paris. Yeah, those neo-Nazis were dressed uh, in black. They rallied in the French capital on the weekend in an authorized protest, and it was in direct contrast to uh, the directives given to anti-pension reforms protesters who've been bagging their pots and pans uh, in protest of Emmanuel Macron in recent times, which has now been severely restricted by authorities. After much criticism, Liberation says that under pressure, uh, the Interior, Minister, uh, Interior Ministry has now moved to ban these types of far-right neo-Nazi uh, demonstrations, notably because protesters were, were clad in black uniforms, but also because they were wearing face masks, which directly contravenes rules about face coverings in public in France, and bearing the, the Celtic cross, which is often a symbol associated with white supremacy groups. Uh, Liberation's editor uh, sort of slamming the, the audacity of far-right leader Marine Le Pen to uh, condemn these far-right protests in what Liberation calls a sort of laughable turn of hypocrisy in this whole scandal. Courier International today is telling us that one of the potential victims of American students using AI to do their homework are actually Kenyan ghostwriters. As the site explains, Kenya is actually a major hub for a contract uh, cheat for the contract cheating industry, and AI may have the paper says just pulled that out of, from under the rug from out of their feet. Now, continuing with AI, the Guardian is talking about the writers' strike in Hollywood. Uh, it says it, it could be it. it could set an important precedent uh, for the workers are asking for assurances that AI is used as a tool and not as a replacement for human real life writers. And that fight, The Guardian says, is every man's fight. It argues that the issue, it hopes that the issue will, re quote, revive the power of the working people that's lost so much to the demands of spreadsheets and stock markets. Stretching as far as the eye can see, almost 400,000 hectares charred since wildfires spread over a week ago. The Western Canadian province of Alberta has reported 24,000 evacuees as of Tuesday afternoon. Military reinforcements have been called in to help battle the blazes, 
which authorities say has already burned 10 times the surface compared to the typical fire year. And what we're trying to do is minimize the fire growth and work in from the outside. Um, it was an extreme condition on Friday. We saw this winds of 50 kilometers an hour. And over the next few days, we're going to see it get drier and drier and hotter and hotter. Alberta has declared a state of emergency, with more than 50 schools closed as of Monday morning. Authorities warn this could just be the beginning of a wildfire season as climates become hotter and drier due to global warming. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. This shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.